the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. When you spend time praying, reading your Bibles, and getting into the presence of God, what begins to happen is you just begin to see a mirror of yourself. And in contrast to his holiness, you begin to see your unholiness. In contrast to his magnificence, you begin to see your insignificance. In contrast to his love, you begin to see your own lovelessness. Isaiah's like, woe is me, I am ruined. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Isaiah. As Pastor Gary continues his teaching series through the book of Isaiah, he'll be encouraging you to spend intimate time in the presence of God through his word and through prayer. Isaiah saw the throne room of God and saw the train of his robe and all his majesty and he immediately realized how wicked his condition was in the presence of a holy God. When you spend time with the Lord, you immediately get a sense of his holiness, and you realize your extreme need for the Savior. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, as he continues his message, God's Calling. The throne of heaven is still occupied, and God is still in control, and God is still Lord, and everything's going to be okay, and He is sovereign. And he sees this about God seated on the throne. It's an important part that is juxtaposed to the first part of verse 1. That second part, in the year the king's eye died, I saw the Lord. He's the one on the ultimate supreme throne. In other words, kings will come and kings will go. We know this, right? Empires will rise and empires will fall. There's not a single king, prime minister, or president right now in office who will still be in office 100 years from now. But God will still be on the throne of heaven. And all is well because God is sovereign. That's what he's saying. So this is an important thing for us to recognize. I'm going to share with you five points from this vision of heaven from Isaiah chapter 6. And this is the first one. God is always on the throne. For Isaiah and all of Judah, the death of Uzziah was a sad day. It was a day of grieving. It was a, it was a day when all that seemed right suddenly felt very wrong. But God wants Isaiah to see that no matter what is happening on earth, God is still seated on the throne of heaven. It is easy 
for any of us to become unsettled or alarmed by life's circumstances. It is very easy when we just look at the horizontal to become very fearful or worried or anxious, sad. And it is good for us to remember the words of Isaiah that in the year that King Uzziah died, the Lord is still on the throne. Because there might be a situation in your life that you need to juxtapose the other half of this first verse to in your life. For some of you going through something very difficult, it's unsettling, you're troubled, it's worrisome, you need to put the second part of verse 1 right next to what you're going through, whatever that might be. Maybe, maybe you would say, in the year that I went through a divorce, I saw also the Lord. In the year that a loved one died, I saw also the Lord. In the year that I lost my job, I lost my home, I lost my health, I saw also the Lord. In the year of great fear or great anxiety or whatever I might be going through, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne. Whatever you might be going through, it's a good reminder here at Isaiah 6.1. Just kind of underline the second part of that verse. Because even though something that was thought to be a good day ended up being a bad day, you put things in perspective by remembering that nevertheless, God is on the throne, and God is in control, and God cares, and God sees, and God knows. David would say in Psalm 25, verse 15, my eyes are ever on the Lord. My eyes are ever on the Lord. And God was the living God, and God will always be the living God. God was the living God when the universe was spoken into existence, and he's still the living God. God was the living God when Nietzsche said that God is dead, and God is still the living God. God was the living God when John Lennon said that Christianity will fade away in his lifetime, and God is still the living God. And God will always be the living God a trillion ages from now when all the puny philosophers will fade into obscurity like a $2 bill, because God is on the throne. God rules, and God reigns, and God is sovereign. Well, then, if you'll glance further in this text with me, then Isaiah describes the majesty and the holiness of God. And this is, this is a, you know, I want you to try to imagine it in your, in, your, in your mind's eye here. The rest of verse 1, he says, And the train of his robe filled the temple. It tells us that there's a temple in heaven. There's a literal temple in heaven. In fact, the Bible says that the temple in Jerusalem used to be, it isn't standing there anymore, it used to be kind of a shadow of the temple that was in heaven. That there is an actual temple in heaven, and there is a throne within that temple, and that God is seated on that throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, we've all seen brides in beautiful wedding dresses with long trains that kind of flowed behind them. Um, it, it was kind of think more of a traditional thing than it is uh, so much these days. But it actually started in medieval times when a bride would have a long train depending on her prominence and prestige. The longer the train, the more prominent she was in society. And the same is true for the royal robe of a king or a queen. The longer the robe, uh, the more it was an indication of the royal prominence. And, and so as Isaiah is seeing this about the Lord's robe, and this train is just like wrapping all throughout the temple, I mean, it is a clear statement that his prominence is unmatched. 
that, that God is glorified in his temple with privilege and prominence and, and this incomparable splendor. And Isaiah sees this, just God in royal robes here and just the magnificence of this scene. And then if, if that's not enough, above and around the Lord are these seraphs that are mentioned here. These winged angelic creatures, and they're just, they're flying around, and, and they're uttering words about the holiness of God. Now, a little bit about seraphs, or the plural, plural, plural word is seraphim, and seraph in Hebrew means uh, fire. And so seraphim literally translates fiery ones. These are angelic creatures, but they're, they're like lit up in fire that is not consuming them. And they have six wings, the Bible describes. Two wings they, they cover their eyes with. Okay, it's a statement of they, they, are, they are unworthy to behold the presence of God. Two wings, they cover their feet. It's a statement that they are unworthy of standing in the presence of God. And Isaiah says, and with two wings they fly. And so here they are around the throne of God and they're flying and with two wings, two wings covering their eyes, two wings covering their feet. This is the only time in all the Bible that seraphs are mentioned. There are other angelic orders mentioned, specifically cherubim. Cherubim are mentioned in the Bible. Get, get out of your head the little chubby babies with wings. Those, those are not legitimate cherubs. Okay, we're talking mighty warriors, angelic beings of God. It seems that in the Bible, cherubim and seraphim are both angelic orders, but of a different kind. It appears that in the Bible here, in Isaiah 6, that seraphim were used exclusively to uh, give praise to God, and in particular, to praise Him for His holiness. Holy is the only word that is used in the Bible in triplicate to describe God. He is a lot of other things. He is just, He is loving, He is all-knowing, He is um, great, gracious and beneficent, but the only word that is used in triplicate to describe the Lord is holy. They cry out, calling to one another in verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. By the way, in Revelation chapter 4, John has a very similar vision of the throne room of God, and he also hears angels. They say something a little bit different. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's Revelation chapter 4. But in in this chapter, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they declare the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God in verse 4, it says that the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Now listen, this isn't God speaking yet. God hasn't even spoken. These are these angelic creatures that as they speak, the temple itself is rattling, rattling, and smoke is throughout the temple. I mean, what a massive, incredible, magnificent scene this was for Isaiah. Just try to imagine it. You know, just here he is seeing this, and the the sights and the sounds, and maybe even the smell of smoke. I don't know, just all of this, all of this happening. Just his senses are being bombarded with this scene of heaven. And the angels, even as they speak about the holiness of God, the temple itself is rattling and filling up with smoke. Moses understood this about God. Moses would say in Exodus fifteen eleven, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory? working wonders. And so here's this scene with the train of his robe filling the temple and angels 
on fire, proclaiming the holiness of God. You got smoke happening. And so it brings us to point number two, where you see that God is majestic and holy, and he is. And as such, we must, as Psalm 96, 9 says, we must worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We must tremble before him all the earth. This is exactly what Isaiah does when he sees and hears these signs and and sounds. He says in verse 5, notice in your Bibles, Woe to me, I cried. Isaiah says, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Notice here how in God's presence, Isaiah becomes painfully aware of himself. In the presence of God, he becomes painfully aware of himself, his own broken condition, his own sinfulness, his own filthy mouth, because he even talks about, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So he, he's just gripped with his own sinfulness and his own depravity. In fact, where it says, woe to me, it literally is, woe is me. I see my own sinfulness in the presence of God. And so he's struck by this as he moves into God's presence. Number three, God is a mirror to my soul. And the same thing will happen to you and me when we spend time in the presence of the Lord. When you spend time praying, reading your Bibles, and getting into the presence of God, what begins to happen is you just begin to see a mirror of yourself. And in contrast to his holiness, you begin to see your unholiness. In contrast to his magnificence, you begin to see your insignificance. In contrast to his love, you begin to see your own lovelessness. Isaiah's like, woe is me, I am ruined. He says, I'm undone. I've come into the presence of God and I am just undone. And so what does it do? It moves him then to seeking the very one in whose presence he feels unholy, unworthy, and loveless to seek forgiveness from a perfect, righteous, and pure God who is holy above all things. And so he realizes, number four, that God is the remedy for my sin. And it tells us in in verses 6 and 7, if you look there in your Bible, verse 6, it says, And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, notice that, in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, in this story, in this incredible scene here, the the seraph, a particular one of these angelic creatures, became God's agent for administering atonement to Isaiah. But I want you to notice how God uses this angel to bring this atonement to Isaiah. The angel goes to the altar of God upon which are these fiery coals, and Isaiah says that the angel takes with tongs a coal off the altar of God because the angel is not worthy to touch the altar itself. But he still is somehow supernaturally able to put within his hand a burning white fiery coal because it tells us that he transferred from the tong to his hand this white hot coal which by the way tells us that in addition to the six wings that the seraph had underneath them somewhere came some hands (laughs) it's kind of a wild looking creature right 
and he transfers with the tongue, the coal, into his own hand, and then takes the hand and touches the lips of Isaiah. I, I don't know, and we don't have any reason to believe, I don't know that it was something scorching that, that injured Isaiah, but perhaps it was something symbolic in that it represents the white-hot purity of God that is now applied to Isaiah's lips, that Isaiah might then be a vessel that God can use to speak through him. But don't miss the language here. The, the, the angel could have just taken the tongs, taken the coal, and then touched Isaiah's lips. Why go through this exchange of transferring it to his hand? Because it is a statement to us that when God used this angel as an agent of atonement, God did not want this impersonal touch of cold metallic tongs, but he wanted the personal touch of atonement so that Isaiah would be a vessel that God could use. And 2,000 years ago, God did a similar thing because his son Jesus became the personal touch of atonement for you and me. Not an impersonal God, far removed, but God himself in flesh becomes the agent of atonement and dies on a cross for us so that we might be personally cleansed by his atoning work. First John 4.10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Which brings us to the last point here. Finally, God speaks. Up until this point, we've only heard from the seraphs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we've heard from Isaiah. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. But now God speaks in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? By the way, notice the plurality of the pronoun, who will go for us. It is a reflection of the Trinity, that God is one God, but he reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God launches this question in heaven, whom shall I send? And the follow-up question, and who will go for us? And Isaiah answers, here am I, send me. Now, first I want you to notice what God says. First time he opens his mouth here to speak in chapter 6, God is not focused on anything else going on there in heaven. He, he's, though he might be impressed, he, he doesn't express that he's impressed at all by the, by the seraphs and the pyrotechnic show with the lights and the wings and the hands coming the, and the smoke and, and all of this. God's not even, it's as if he's, he's not even concerned about any of that. And he doesn't even, for the moment, he doesn't even acknowledge that Isaiah there is in his presence. The one all-consuming thing in the heart of God are the lost. And who will reach those who don't know me? This is, this is the heart of God. Who will reach those who don't know me? And those who don't even know that they don't know me. So he asks these questions. Whom shall I send? I'm burdened by the people who are lost. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then Isaiah speaks, and he says, well, here am I, send me. Now, at first glance, it almost looks almost a little arrogant, doesn't it? It's like, well, I'm your man, God. You know, sign me. Here I am. I mean, I've been standing right here. I've been kind of noticing the whole thing. And did you not realize you opened the curtain of heaven so that I could, here I am, Lord. You know, send me. That's not actually 
It might sound arrogant to our ears, but it's not intended that way at all. Because what it literally means, what he's asking, he says, here am I. And then literally it translates like this. Look me over, God, and see if I'll do. Here am I. Look me over and see if I'll do. In the scene, God doesn't specifically say, okay, Isaiah, now listen, I brought you up here into heaven because this is what I want you to do. Here's the deal. You're going to be going to Judah. You're going to tell all these people all these different woes. You're going to prophesy judgment. You're going to come. He doesn't, God doesn't do anything. He just says, just kind of launches this invitation. He goes, who's going to go for us? Who can I send to reach the lost? And Isaiah just steps up and says, here am I, Lord, look me over and see if I'll do. And this begins the commissioning and the calling of Isaiah as someone that God uses for his purposes and for his glory. And so the last point is simply this, that God is still using people to reach people. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't mean this to sound like I'm over-spiritualizing the story here, but I mean this sincerely. Could you be an Isaiah for this generation? Could God possibly be calling you to be a vessel that he would use for this generation? Because God is still using people to reach people. Now, I want to clarify something, lest anybody misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the only people that God can use are those in full-time ministry. We have ministry wherever we are, wherever we go, wherever we work, wherever we live. And I hope everybody understands that. Wherever you live, God has planted you, and that circle of your neighbors is your ministry. And wherever you work, that's where God has planted you, and your co-workers, that's your circle of ministry. Wherever you go, God wants us to be vessels that he would use as salt and light in the world. So I want everybody to hear that clearly. But there are also those that God will call to give the rest of their lives in service to the work of the ministry. It's what God did in my life. I wrestled with it all through high school. I first went to college as a journalism major. I wanted to be, well, I can't compare myself to any journalist anymore because they're, they're all, they've all either having a bad fall or speaking fake news. Let's just say I went from fake news to real news, okay? That's what I'm doing now. I went from fake news to real news. But anyway, but, but I, I can tell you that for years I just kind of wrestled with what is that? What is a calling? And, and just this sense of, you know, again, like Isaiah, just like, woe is me. I mean, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, you know, Lord, but if you could use me, look me over and see if I'll do. And God will call different people in that way in full-time ministry. And I believe he's calling some of you. All of us have ministry, but some of you God wants to call as your vocation, as your occupation in service to the Lord. I don't know what it might mean. Maybe pastoring, maybe a missionary, maybe serving at an orphanage in another country, maybe in the tech field for support services for missionaries on the field. I mean, it can be maybe in parachurch organizations like Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Campus Crusade Crew, some other great organizations or ministries. But if God is calling you and you're wrestling, what does that even mean? Today might be the day that you surrender your will to His. I'm just saying. Oh, please, no. 
Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary Hamrick's verse-by-verse study through the book of Isaiah here on Cornerstone Connection. We're glad we're able to bring you these teachings straight from God's Word. But we're even more glad you chose to spend time with us today. We love hearing from our listeners. So please give us a call if you have a moment and tell us how you've been impacted by this ministry. Our phone number here is 703-771-1500. When you call, let us know how we can be praying for you. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. If you missed any part of this broadcast or would like to explore more of Pastor Gary's teachings as he's been working his way through the Bible, we invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our entire archive is available there, along with companion study resources. Just look under the Teachings tab. You can also download our mobile app to connect with Scripture whenever and wherever you happen to be. There's a link to that under the Teaching tab. Or search for Cornerstone Chapel in your app store. If you're in the Leesburg area, you're invited to join us at Cornerstone Chapel for our weekly services. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for in today's study of Isaiah. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection.